This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. As many of you have uh, seen, Ordinary Mind Zendo now has a uh, presence on Facebook. And um, one of the curious byproducts of uh, getting involved in that is I've gotten, found my way into uh, a number of uh, discussion groups of which there seem to be an endless number on a variety of topics. <coughs> not quite sure how I gotten involved as I have, but there's, of course, a little Zen discussion group, but also one on analytic philosophy, another slightly more informal philosophy group called the Partially Examined Life. Uh, and... Um, one by some psychoanalysts, and one on uh, uh, modern stoicism, which is a curious thing. And I, I was sort of got involved because I wanted to try to get some feel for what that would mean to be a present-day stoic, or what these people think they're up to. Some of you may have taken a look at uh, book downstairs uh, that I translated years back, uh, The Life of Zeno, uh, his biography, uh, Diogenes Laertius. Zeno being the uh, founder of, one of the early founders of Stoicism, rather than the formulator of the paradoxes that uh, people usually think of when they hear the name Zeno. In any case, um, Stoicism had uh, a couple main features that make it both very appealing and also very problematic for us to believe um, in a modern or contemporary way. Um, Stoicism arose uh, really at the end of the uh, period where the, the Greeks enjoyed any kind of freedom. They were first absorbed into the empire of Alexander and then into the Roman Empire. And <coughs> Stoicism, in a way, was one of the responses uh, of an individual attempting to live in a world that was increasingly unfree, uh, unpredictable, just plain dangerous. And the Stoics developed a 
doctrine that basically said we should not seek our happiness through the control of any external reality, any external forms of comfort or satisfaction, because these were always going to be subject to what other people or what chance could do to us, and that the goal of philosophy was somehow to find and establish true freedom. And for the Stoics, that freedom was could only be inner freedom, that the world was demarcated into inner and outer, and that um, the wise man realized that he could not have any control over the outer, but instead need to, needed to be master of the inner. And in general, philosophers in those periods were people who trained themselves in asceticism and self-control. And it was sort of one sign of a philosopher is that he was the one who voluntarily wore the thinnest cloak in the dead of winter. Someone who did not try to protect himself from the elements, did not seek out the comforts and safety that ordinary people did, but allowed himself to be toughened or impervious to the outer. There's a um, very good new biography of the Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca by James Rom called Dying Every Day, which depicts what it was like in the Roman Empire to try to maintain some sense of inner integrity while being in the part of an imperial court, uh, Seneca allowed himself to become the tutor of Nero, uh, perhaps fancying himself to be to the role that Aristotle had uh, for Alexander the Great. As you can imagine this did not end happily. <laughs> uh, but it was in a certain way emblematic of the Stoic philosopher's dilemma of how do you live in a dangerous, capricious world. Now I think what's relevant to us in terms of practice uh, in a contemporary way about all of this and what I was trying to address this online forum, seeing what these so-called contemporary Stoics believed in, was what would it, how do we continue to maintain the notion that the inner as opposed to the outer is an area in which we have freedom and control in an era that is we could 
you know, basically say post-Freudian, we no longer have the idea that the inner is simply the arena of reason, but it's also the arena of unconscious process. And our contemporary point of view, regardless of, you know, what orientation you have philosophically or analytically, is that we generally have a very different sense of the mind not being defined by simply being rational, but by being subject to multiple forces, whether we think of them as uh, unconscious motivations or uh, biological drives or hormonal vicissitudes, but whatever causes it, whatever is going on in our inner life is hardly an area of where we would now think we have absolute control. Uh, And most people in some way come to practice because their experience of their inner life is is at least as out of control as their outer life. And so the question is um, what is the function of practice there? Is practice going to be a matter of gaining greater and greater mastery or or control over our inner experience in a way that parallels what we would try to do over outer experience. The Temporary Stoics, as far as I can tell, are trying to do something that employs techniques of a mindfulness-like nature as training in inner self-control. And so part of what we, when we practice have to come to terms with is what to what extent are we operating under a, uh, a metaphor or a curative fantasy of inner mastery? What kind of control do we think we're going to achieve? Uh, and how much do we endlessly measure how we're doing in terms of what kind of control over our own mind that are we able to have. And this is a fairly familiar idea to you and how much we can get preoccupied with clarity or equanimity or any kind of state whatsoever that we think we're here to maximize and to hold on to as long or tightly as possible and call that practice. (coughs) The other dimension that I think is problematic for the original philosophy of Stoicism was their sharp demarcation between inner and outer. Our inner world was private and ours alone. 
that idea itself seems increasingly untenable. Um, and we, we're inclined now, philosophically, psychologically, and in terms of Buddhist practice as well, to see that there is no clear line between inner and outer. That the uh, inner is constantly <coughs> shaped by the outer. That there is no boundary between self and world. That these interpenetrate and mutually define one another. And that's a, a strain in modern philosophical thought that you find in Hegel and Wittgenstein and psychoanalysis and intersubjectivity as well as Buddhism that everything about our inner experience only arises in some kind of relational context psychoanalyst uh, D.W. Winnicott famously said there's no such thing as a baby Uh, there's no separate possibility of babies without mothers uh, a, a separate private individual that in any way comes into being or is defined in any way other than relationally so these two basic notions and there's there's a third actually I should mention that for the Stoics um, the mind was um, predominantly defined by reason and this capacity to make inner choices and that the inner reason of the mind was in some sense uh, identical with or connected to the logos, the reason of the universe, that we lived in a rationally determined universe uh, and that the organization of the world and the organization of the mind were in some sense uh, analogous or continuous. Um, There was something that was, you could say, proto-scientific about that as opposed to thinking that the world was governed by uh, the capriciousness of individual gods. They had a kind of uh, rational, mechanistic picture of how the world functioned. But again, their emphasis was on natural law and a sense of order rather than a sense of randomness and unpredictability uh, both in terms of the world and in terms of the mind. So all of these things, um, the notion of the mind as a private sphere subject to our control, the clear demarcation between inner and outer, and the notion that the world is, and the mind, is essentially defined and determined by reason, are all notions that uh, we increasingly find difficult to hold on to. What I 
would say from a practice point of view today, though, is that we, we should look to the extent to which at some level we find that those ideas enormously appealing. And their, their appeal goes to the heart of uh, much of our individual curative fantasies. How much we practice for inner control, how much we see what goes on in the cushion is about something that's happening privately inside of our head, how much we imagine this is going to allow us to make sense of our mind, our life. And the alternative, which I think defines the true practice that none of us really want to do, is to allow ourselves to experience our mind as an uncontrollable flux, to experience the vulnerability that we all feel as embodied, interconnected creatures. And how much of what we do is not about cultivating a private experience, but is completely dependent on how we relate, how we connect to one another. 